Richard, Sicily, 
Okay, let's, like I said, happy back to school for everyone out there. Drink up, enjoy your peace and quiet. If you if you are lucky enough to have peace and quiet, enjoy it. Watch some um, Speaking of Which, before I go any farther. Rest in peace, Bob Barker. You kept a lot of us entertained on days home from school. Mm-hmm. Because of Bob Barker, I think I could go on the prices right and get it get to the showcase showdown. Yeah, and he's gonna be at Hollywood Hills. So oh, one of the guys on one of my history lampoon pages. Uh-huh. So yeah, and if he, everyone who thinks this is a bad taste, you've been listening to the show long enough, you should be surprised that this has not came out before. But they said they should drop Bob down a Plinko board. Uh, yeah, and let the little uh, little alpine guy do his uh, yodeling as Bob falls down. And I said, "What well, would be nice if like Bob fell out of the casket, so you got like a double bonus?" Uh, yeah, <laughs> still had still have the alpine guy do the yodeling, you know. Mm-hmm. I can't even do it, but man, that game was always so fun. You wanted you wanted the people to not let that sucker fall off the top of the cliff. Uh-huh. Although Plinko is a good game too. It's just where you where you drop the Plinko chip. Yeah, all the shows back in the like watching Wheel Fortune. Like after this one get into the show, but I totally forgot that they um would have like the items that they could. Oh yeah, and then they would like, oh, I want this for that now. This yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I was like, because I was watching like on YouTube or one of the old, like the streaming thing yeah. or something. But I was like, I totally completely forgot about that. Right. Whatever you want in that round, you got to pick. You know, they showed you the 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 showroom. Yeah. And you got to pick whatever was left and put the rest on the gift certificate. Uh huh. Yeah. And there was some gaudy '80s furniture too. Oh uh, yeah, there was like some stuff. It was like, oh god, the the, the Dalmatian umbrella stand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some gaudy ass '80s furniture. But anyway, we got a good one for you. If you remember last week, we did buy uh, John Wilkes Booth. I knew I'd remember. Well, we're gonna cover somebody who was either associated with it, involved in it. I'm still on the fence on the whole thing, but we're going to talk about Miss Mary Surratt. Because I got a book on Mary Surratt. I want to test it out before I put this into a uh, history podcast. Mary Surratt was born Mary Elizabeth Jenkins in 1823 to a tobacco planter and his wife. Now, we don't know much about her her childhood. We don't even know what her parents' name was. But I'm going to take a guess, and I think her father's name may have been Roscoe Jenkins. But we do know that in 1825, her father died. And her mother, being a pious woman, we believe, never married or never remarried. In 1835... Mary was sent to the Academy for Young Ladies in Alexandria, Virginia in 1835. Now, no records have ever been found of what courses she studied. 
What is known is that sometime during her education, she converted to Catholicism, and she maintained this throughout her life. The school closed in 1839. Now, when she was 16, she met her future husband, John Surratt, or I should say Surratt Sr. Now, he was 10 years older than Mary, which uh, you can complain about it, but it was customary for the time. Well, John never knew who his parents were as he was given the foster parents on a Washington, D.C. farm. It has been suggested that since John never knew who his parents were and that he was raised by foster parents, John was born out of wedlock, which was a big crime back then. In 1838, he fathered a child with a woman named Caroline Sanderson. Now, you would think that John would do the proper thing and marry this woman and raise the child, but he didn't. Didn't marry her. And he did not take financial responsibility for the child until a judge ordered him to do so in 1840, which was exactly the same year that he was that he uh, that he had married Mary. John started a grist mill on the land he inherited from his foster father. But by 1845, debt began to pile up, forcing John to relinquish the mill, and he became a farmer. Well, misfortune continued to happen as his foster mother died and her house burned to the ground. Now, we believe the arson was set by one of the enslaved people she owned, which John would have inherited, and the house was burnt to the ground. Now, 1852, John purchased 187 acres at the intersection of Mar Marlboro Piscataway. I butchered that and I apologize for people. Piscataway. Piscataway? Yep. Okay, well, I was going to apologize for the people in uh, Maryland that I offended by that. But thank you for the clarification. You're welcome. Now, John built a nine-room tavern that Mary called Surratt's Villa. The place eventually became Surrattsville, and the place still stands today as a museum to the, to the escape of John Wilkes Booth. The profits allowed John to build a townhouse in Washington, D.C. A few letters survive in Mary's handwriting to her priest, Father Joseph Finati. In these letters, Mary revealed that her husband was an alcoholic and he physically abused her. Mary also confided to her priest that she wanted her three children, Isaac, Anna, and John Jr., to receive a Catholic education, but money was a problem. In 1854, Anna enrolled at St. Mary's Female Institution in Bryantown. Later in 1854, a chance meeting at the tavern at Surrattsville led Isaac and John Jr. to be enrolled at the St. Thomas Manor in Chapel Point. On August 19th of 1862, John Sr. died suddenly, leaving Mary in debt, which worsened as Maryland passed a new constitution that abolished slavery, cutting into her workforce, and increased her debt. To solve this, she rented out the tavern and moved into the townhouse in D.C. and took in boarders. One of her boarders, Lois Whiteman, was present when her son, John Jr., met John Wilkes Booth for the first time. After that meeting, Booth would often visit the boarding house to talk with John, 
often in the parlor, unless he wanted a private word upstairs. If John wasn't home, Booth would talk with Mary. The boarding house was known to Confederate blockade runners as a safe place to stay. Lewis knew the family was Confederate sympathizers, and John Jr. was a Confederate operative, and another boarder, Sarah Slater, was a Confederate courier. Lewis believed that the family shared the same political leanings that Booth believed in. Booth had included John Jr. in his plans to kidnap Lincoln and take him to Richmond. While this remained in place until April 11th, John and his mother's boarding house was used as a meeting place. When the plan changed to murder, John Jr. wanted nothing to do with the plan. John had a mission that took him out of Washington, D.C. on the night of April 14th. He was seen in upstate New York. Okay. That's you. Right. Sorry. In the early <laughs> morning hours of April 15th, the police came knocking on the door at Mrs. Surratt's boarding house. The police were searching for Booth and John Jr. Louis Weichman answered the door and went to get Mrs. Surratt. Mary asked why the police were there and was told that the president and secretary of state had been assassinated. To this day, no one is really sure how the police arrived at the boarding house. It is possible that the police knew the house to be a safe house for Confederates or Confederate sympathizers and thinking that the assassination was a Confederate plot, they went there to search the place. The police left because they found no evidence. With little to go on, as I said, they left. No one suspected that Mary could have been involved in the plot to kill the president, but that changed on April 17th. A tip, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, came into the police from a man named John Kimball. According to Kimball, who heard it from a boarder in the house, because as we all know, secondhand information is quite reliable. Three strangers arrived at the boarding house on Saturday night. One of the strangers said Booth and John Jr. were at the theater Friday night. Mary asked if they had seen their friends. One of the strangers asked for a change of clothes. Mary supplied the change and the men left. With that information, at 10.30 in the evening, the police went to the boarding house to arrest Mary Surratt. When the police arrived, Mary was sitting in the parlor with her daughter, her niece, and another female boarder. Major Smith informed Mary that he was there to arrest her in connection with the assassination of the president. Now, Smith ordered a carriage for the for the women, and one of the guys was like, ah, nah, they can walk, and Major said, nah, get them a carriage. These are women. and Treat them respectably. Once Mary and the others put on their shawls, Mary asked if she could pray, and Major Smith said, yeah, sure, go for it. Pray to the Lord. Now, during this prayer, a man arrived at the door saying he was hired to dig a ditch for Mrs. Surratt. When asked if she recognized the man, Mary said he was unfamiliar to her. Well, Major being a, a prudent man, ordered the man arrested and brought along. Now, what he didn't know was he had just arrested George Azerot, the man who was supposed to kill Vice President Johnson. The smoking gun, if you will, came on April 18th. The police went out to interview John Lloyd 
the current renter of the tavern in Srotsville. The police had interviewed Lloyd before, but he said he did not know anything. His conscience got the best of him, and on April 18th, he confessed to what he knew. According to Lloyd, several weeks before the assassination, John Jr., David Hurl, and George Atzerodt came to the tavern. John called Lloyd into the parlor, where he showed Lloyd two Spencer carbine rifles, ammunition, a length of rope, and a monkey wrench. John showed Lloyd where to hide the weapons at the tavern. On April 11th, Lloyd was in D.C. when he met Mrs. Herod and in a roundabout way asked if the weapons were still hidden. Lloyd said they were, and nothing more was said. On April 14th, around 5 p.m., Lloyd arrived at the tavern. He had been drinking and found Mrs. Surratt waiting for him. She had told him that some people were coming later that night to get the weapons he had hidden there and to have them ready. She then gave him a package to hold on to. It was a pair of binoculars. After he fixed her buggy, he went into the tavern. Lloyd wasn't disturbed until after midnight when he was awakened by Harold and Booth knocking on the door. He gave them the packages and discovered that Lincoln and Seward had been killed. But that was just some bad information on Seward, though. Well, you know, right. You know, Seward survived. Yeah, so. But they, they didn't know it at the time. Well, yeah. And, I mean, he did get pretty bad, so. So I just right. and, that, I mean, that, you know, it wasn't wrong in the script. It was, you know, that's what well, he was right. We kind of we kind of alluded to it last week. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's kind of like where I left everything because I uh, we're gonna next week we're gonna get into her uh, interrogation and trial. You mean that's not the end of it? Of course not. Yeah. There's more to the story? There is. And, and I'm, I've always been on, you know, and I've argued this case on like Civil War pages. And um, I've always wondered how much, and, and this, I mean, this is the question we have to ask until now was how much did she know? Uh -huh. was, she, was she involved in strictly the kidnapping? Did she know that it turned into an assassination? Yeah. How much did she know? Because, I mean, not to give things away here. I mean, it's kind of like spoiler alert from 150 right. years ago. I mean, she did hang. Yeah, actually more than 150. Yeah. yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I can, I'll have it figured up here in a moment. This is 2023. Yeah, so 158. Yes, 158. Um, how much did she know? How deeply involved was she? These are questions we don't know because no one left a record of what Mary knew, what, what she didn't know. So, and a lot of people think that she basically took the place of her son. Yeah. Because John was in New York, and then when he heard it, he actually went over into Canada, got a hold of some Confederate agents over there, and they smuggled him out of the out of the hemisphere. Mm -hmm. They didn't find him until like three years later, working as a guard, working as in the um, Vatican Army. 
He made it all the way to the Pope, man. <laughs> but they, they brought him back and did a trial, and they, I think they found him not guilty in that trial. Yeah. Sure. And, and by 1868, I mean, people were kind of over the whole assassination bit because Mary and the other three were hung. Four others went down to the Dry Tortugas in Florida. One died. There was Dr. Mudd went down there. He was sent to uh, the Dry Tortugas. And he actually, him and the other three got pardoned in when 1868 when... Um, When um, Booth, or uh, actually a yellow fever epidemic hit the prison and Dr. Mudd helped everyone. So he kind of got a commuted sentence, but Johnson was pardoning everybody when he was getting out of office. Okay. He was just like, you get a pardon and you get a pardon, you get a pardon. Yay. He was tossing them out the window, right? Oh, he was tossing them out left and right. And then what? Um, what was going on? You know, we'll mention this next week. It was the Mary and the conspirators. The the base is still standing in D.C. where they were held. Mm -hmm. The building is still there. They don't allow tours, but I, I watched a show, and they actually were in in the courtroom where the conspirators were held on trial. And um. Where a tennis court is now it used to be the armory building where Booth was buried. And then like right next to the gallows was the other four were buried. And what was messed up was while they were in their cells, they got to hear the uh, gallows being built. Uh, yeah, so. And then as they were walking up to the gallows, they got to see their four graves dug and waiting for them. Like that that is some psychology. Well, it can't be as bad as John Brown. I mean, he rode his own coffin to his hanging. Uh -huh. Okay. And we're gonna put you in this wagon, Mr. Brown. Um, can you sit on your coffin? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's nice and roomy, right? So I got right. But you know, when um and the thing is, is when Johnson was getting out of office, he actually signed the paperwork for the bodies of the five to go back to their families. And, and there was this, like, I remember reading in, um, I think it was Fortune's Fool for uh, John, John Wilkes Booth that his brother Edwin received the body, picked it up from D.C., they took it to Baltimore. And him and some people who you know, some theater people who knew his brother, they all kind of met like in this, this shed behind the theater mm -hmm. and opened up the coffin just to make sure that it was John in there. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, three years, you know, there was some decay, but they could still tell it was him. Yeah. And it, uh, the, the, the bullet that went through his neck, those vertebrae are in the Army Surgical Museum in DC, I want to say. They're not on display. They're in they're in storage. But knowing me, I would have back there, I would have picked up the head and started doing like Shakespeare, you know. Uh -huh. The last poor York. I knew him well. 
Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my right time now. Yeah. <laughs> but there was one guy, there was someone there who was like a young child, mm -hmm. like nine, ten, when they did this, that like years later he was the last living witness to it. And he and he said, Yeah, this is what they did. Because they had to wait for the ground to thaw at the cemetery to bury John. And he's buried in well, you saw Mrs. Surratt's grave. Yep. But John oh. is, yeah, John is in Baltimore and he does not have a headstone. No. But he's with the Booth family in their plot. So if you go there, you know, people keep leaving like pennies on Edwin's tombstone. It's like, wrong Booth, idiot. Uh huh. But there was a good reason why Edwin did not want a tombstone for John. Well, I wonder why. No, actually. His reasoning was he didn't want it to become a symbol for the uh, the unreconstructed Confederates out there. Well, yeah, and and I I get Edwin's reasoning. Uh -huh. I would have done the same thing. I'd have been like, uh, "No fool, you ain't getting no headstone. You st no, no, you brought shame and disgrace on our family name for generations to come." Yeah, so like, you don't get to come back tomorrow. Uh-huh. You don't even get a lousy copy of our home game. Ouch. You're a complete loser. Don't know why. I, oh, I was, I was just doing the last bit of I Lost on Jeopardy. Okay. I don't know why it popped into my head. I, I just rolled with it. Yeah. But we are going to end this one for you, folks. You know where to find us. Spotify, Apple, Facebook. Review us and for killers, cults, and nut jobs. I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Good night, Monica.